0: Thanks Jared. Uh, hey everyone, my name is Ming. I'm one of the pastors here at Uni Church. It's great to be here with you all. Um, I'd like to add my welcome to Marcus' especially if you're new or new here amongst us. Now you would have might have noticed we're actually just carrying on in a series that we're doing for the book of Revelation. We've been in it for quite a few weeks now, uh, and if you've been here for most of that series, uh, you'll know that you know, we've had a bit of a rough ride recently. You know, we've seen lots of horrible things. We've seen, you know, human tyranny. We've seen God's judgment. We've seen death. Uh, and it's really, really harrowing stuff. So if you're, you're new, you've missed out on some of the really crazy things. A little bit of sad that you did miss out on that, but don't worry. Just a little bit of a warning. We're actually going to get a bit more of that this week. Uh, but I mentioned this last week um, at North Shore, so you wouldn't have heard this necessarily at Uni Church. but chapters uh, 15 to 20 of Revelation, uh, which you're looking at a large chunk of today, we're actually looking at verse chapter 17 to 19, all throughout that, is actually considered the tipping point of Revelation. Uh, we've hit the climax of Revelation now, and so while there's still lots of you know messiness and you know, harrowing stuff to work our way through, I hope today that we're actually going to start to see the light at the end of the tunnel, uh, and that we'll start to see why the gospel, the Christian message, is so incredible. So as we jump into this passage, uh, why don't we pray and ask God to help us see that light at the end of the tunnel as we work our way through a lot of messiness. Let's pray together. Uh, Dear Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you so much for your word, uh, and that through this massive book of revelation there's been a lot of stuff that you've revealed to us a lot of wisdom a lot of things to be alert for but above all actually seen your grace and your kindness and your son jesus and so while we may be confused by a lot of the things that are still going on in revelation the big message is clear Uh, we know that you're in control we know that you're a good god and we know that your son jesus is a sure hope Uh, we pray that we might see that today and we pray this in jesus name amen uh, well, a few weeks ago, uh, the American National Football League, the NFL, started its 103rd season. Uh, now, uh, probably not many of you probably watched this. Um, I've actually only been following the sport for maybe four or five years, not really siding with any of the 32 teams in this league. Uh, but you're, if you're anything like me, and if you happen to watch sports, uh, following a sport is always way more fun if you pick a team to root for, and be loyal to, and go through the thick and thin with it. And so, uh, and what makes it even more fun is that if the team that you've chosen to follow is a winning team. Uh, See, one of the reasons that I haven't actually picked a team to follow yet is that uh, I kinda wanna pick a team that has a winning culture. I don't wanna be a bandwagon, uh, but I do wanna pick a winner. Uh, I wanna pick a team uh, that will be really fun to support. And it got me thinking this week, this past week, isn't that what we all want? Uh, we want to know which team, or which investment, or which person is going to be a winner. We want to know. We want to know that because we want to know which side we ought to be on, who or what is going to win. And so, as we're working our way through Revelation, one of the questions that the book is actually answering is: Is it sensible to be a Christian or not? Is Christianity? Is Jesus a winner? You sort of want to know, don't you? Uh, Which side do I need to be on? And this question emerges because the first century readers, the first readers of this letter of Revelation, uh, looked around at their world, and as we look around at our world, uh, our world today, they started to wonder, like we might start to wonder, am I on the right side? Am I investing my life in something that's a complete waste of time, and something that's just gonna go nowhere? Because if we look at the world around us, It looks like the non-Christian world is killing the Christian world. It looks like Goliath is in his element. There are empty church buildings. National surveys show less and less people professing faith. Secular media is constantly in our faces. It's now considered a bit weird to to believe in God or, or spend your Sundays coming to church. And it was the same sort of thing in the first century. Nothing's changed. And so if you've ever started to wonder, am I on the right side? should I really be believing this whole Jesus stuff? It's that that question that our passage answers today. Now, very briefly, Revelation chapters 15 and 16 last week showed us a big picture of God's judgment in his world. And it was meant to be a sweeping overview of human sin and rebellion and God's final and fair judgment. But to help us understand all that, we're actually taken in for a closer look in Revelation 17 to 19, which we're looking at today. You can kind of think of it like one of those really massive pictures in the art gallery. I'm not sure if any of you have been in the art gallery recently, but you can kind of think of it like you know, one of those pictures that just take up this whole wall, right? Uh, that's Revelation chapters 15 to 16. And so in this picture, we see all these details and all these things going on, uh, different colors, landmarks, and textures. But to help us understand it, we can actually zoom in on the picture, and see the different scenes to really understand what's going on and understand the main message of that big picture. And so across Revelation 17 to 19, John takes us in to that big picture that we saw last week in Revelation 15 to 16 to three sections of that picture uh, to see that uh, and see those details. And so the three pictures are a prostitute, a funeral, and a celebration, which are the three points in the outlines. So let's first, let's look at the prostitute. Come with me to chapter 17, uh, verse 1. It will be up on the screen. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the judgment of the notorious prostitute who sits on many waters. The kings of the earth committed sexual immorality with her, and those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. All right, so we're we're taking in close to this big picture, and we see a prostitute. Someone who the world commits sexual immorality with. But here's the thing with this prostitute. She's actually someone who promotes and encourages spiritual unfaithfulness to God. See, this prostitute calls out to us, to the world, and tempts us to betray and give up our one, who our one true love ought to be, God. And so in verse 2 at the end there, we see powerful rulers joining the prostitute by ignoring replacing or displacing God in their governments. But even more than that, we see this prostitute is great at her job. She's intoxicating. Have a look at the end of verse two again, it'll be up on the screen. Those who live on the earth became drunk on the wine of her sexual immorality. In other words, they're addicted. They find it exciting to be unfaithful to the true and living God. And how often Do we find our friends, our family, even ourselves, raise the question in our hearts, wouldn't life be way better without God? Isn't isn't life easier and more comfortable without Jesus? It's exactly thoughts like those that the prostitute calls out to. And she's not only great at her job, she's incredibly attractive as well. We want to join her. Have a look with me at verse 4 up on the screen. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls. See, there is a beauty to this prostitute. She genuinely looks splendid and glorious and desirable. But here's the catch. When we come up close, have a look with me at verse 4. It's up on the screen. She had a gold cup in her hand filled with everything vile and with the impurities of her prostitution. See, even though outwardly there is a beauty and desirability, right? It's only when you go up close and look inside the cup, underneath all that makeup, you find immorality and corruption. Just like the private lives of, of many emperors throughout history, politicians, and even religious gurus who scoff at the living God, it's only when you look within do you see what's really going on. Have you ever had one of those experiences? where you know, you're you driving or walking down the street and it's lunchtime and you're starving. And then out of the corner of your eye, you see the kernel, you see KFC. And so you think to yourself, I could do with some original recipe. So, so, so you go in, you sit down, and the chicken is right before you and it looks so good. But after eating it, you, you look at your fingers, the grease, you feel it in your stomach. You feel filthy. Now, I joke, but the prostitute really is a bit like that. She looks wonderful. You want her. But underneath is everything vile and impure and filthy. Now, I do still like KFC, so I'm not saying you can't eat KFC. Um, but have a look with me at verse 5 at this prostitute, another look at her. Verse 5. On her forehead, a cryptic name was written, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the vile things of the earth. See, the picture we're looking at is the source of everything that is impure, vile, and spiritually unfaithful to God. The prostitute, Babylon, is the pattern of all that is antichrist in this world. She stands for the world opposed to God. And so all throughout chapter 17, there's all this detail about Babylon. I won't go through it all, but in short, chapter 17 is trying to paint this picture of a great temptress, someone who lures us into doubt, sin, and trouble. And so in verse 6, we see how powerful she is. Uh, I mean, we see that she's ruthless. She's drunk on the blood of the saints. And then in verse 9, we see how powerful she is. She sits atop hills and kings. She sits on top of them. In verse 14, she wages war with the Lamb Jesus. She's anti-Jesus. And in verse 15, she captivates the hearts of people all over the world. They're wrapped around her finger. And all this imagery is actually meant to come as a shock. We're meant to gasp as the makeup is washed away and we're showing what's really underneath. Have a look at John's response at the end of verse 6. It's up on the screen. He says this. When I saw her... I was greatly astonished. And what this is trying to tell us is we need to realize that Satan operates in this world through things like political power or religious power or whatever it might be. We need to realize that he operates in such a way that people will be shocked, genuinely astonished to discover that Satan has been behind it all along. See, our world thinks that it's all being very very progressive, very positive, very pro-choice when it passes laws that go against God's word and silence testifying to it. We go around swapping ideas, watching and reading things from Dawkins and Harris, buying their bestsellers, thinking, oh, that's really clever. That makes so much sense. But we need to ask, where does this opposition from God come from? Because at the very end, people are going to be shocked That it smells of smoke. It comes from the devil. Now, at this point, you might still be left wondering just who is Babylon? Who or what is Babylon meant to represent? What am I meant to look out for? And look, this is where people have gone wild. Everyone has their own theory. And the trap that people tend to fall into is they're trying to pin it down to one city or one culture or one ideology. So, so some people thought uh, that John was talking about Rome in his own day when he was writing this. Others have said that it's the Roman Catholic Church. Some think that it's communism or capitalism or atheism. You even find people who think that it's the United States of America. Look, whatever theories that we might come up against or hear about, what we need to do is remember the key, uh, remember our keys to reading the book of Revelation. And in this case, we need to remember that all the symbols and images we see all actually come from the Old Testament. And we actually run into Babylon quite a lot in the Old Testament. So right back at the beginning of the Bible, Ryan helped us with this a few weeks ago, back in Genesis chapter 11, we actually read about how Babylon began. When Uh, when early human beings united together to build a great city with a massive tower that reached up to the heavens. It was to be a proud symbol of human defiance against God. And what's fascinating is, there is a beauty to Genesis chapter 11, isn't there? Humanity united together. The ingenuity and determination to build a tower to the heavens. You know, up until that point, bricks didn't exist. They came up with the technology to to make bricks. Uh, There's something really admirable and incredible about that, isn't there? But there's also something really ugly too. Our pride. Our rebellion. The fact that we try to remove God from our lives, not treating God, our maker, as we ought. And it's the exact same problem with Babylon later on throughout the Old Testament. In books like Ezekiel or Daniel, we see Babylon as a world superpower. Babylon is great, strong, beautiful, but at the same time, completely godless. Babylon is idolatrous, it's proud. She's the symbol of the very best and the very worst of what humanity is capable of. See, what we are seeing here in Revelation is the ultimate picture of human rebellion. She's not one city, she's every city. She's every culture, every ideology. In fact, I think that she's every human heart. And Babylon represents humanity and our rebellious hearts and desires to reject and defy God. Absolutely, I think Babylon was Rome in John's day. But I think she's New York, she's Los Angeles, she's Tokyo, she's Auckland. She's all of us in our rebellious little lives rebelling against God. But here's the point. Just like all of rebellious humanity, Babylon has a beauty to her. She's clothed in gold, purple and scarlet. There's everything you can imagine buying there. Just have a look at chapter 18, verse 12, up on the screen. Uh, in her comes cargoes of gold, silver, jewels and pearls, fine lemon, purple, silk and scarlet. That's just a long read. Just look at all that stuff. And what Revelation is trying to say is, don't get mesmerized by that glory. See, we can be so amazed by the splendor of Babylon, by the things we can do as humankind, by the latest gadget we can invent, by our next great record-breaking feat. We can be so mesmerized by that glory that we never see the evil that goes alongside it. We overlook the millions that we just consign to the scrap heap of starvation and poverty so we can drive our BMWs and wear our Nikes. We never see the species that we wipe out so we can have our perfumes and use our plastics. We never see the used and abused in Babylon. And when we look past the harbor bridge, the sky tower, the, the beachside views, when you look past the fancy bars, the cute cafes, the, the pretty lights at Britomart, when you strip away all that, all the bright and shinies, that's what lies underneath. And that's the thing. Babylon is the very best and the very worst of humanity. It is beautiful, inventive, and luxurious, and proud, and arrogant, and sinful, and wicked. And because of that, we actually get two views of her judgment. So let's first look at the first view at the funeral. Uh, So have a look with me at chapter 8, verse 1. After this, I saw another angel... With great authority coming down from heaven, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. He cried in a mighty voice, It has fallen. Babylon the Great has fallen. So, chapter 18 carries on a lot of the similar imagery that we actually see in chapter 17. But this time, it's all about Babylon's judgment. And at the heart of why Babylon is judged is her pride. So, have a look at verse 7 up on the screen. As much as she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, give her that much torment and grief. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen. I'm not a widow, and I will never see grief. In Babylon's heart, she boasts proudly. I'll never mourn. I'll never grieve for my sins. Why should I? She won't apologize. She won't learn or listen. Babylon won't confess her sins. She won't repent. And so she'll never receive God's mercy, and instead be consumed by his judgment. Now, the key thing to actually notice is actually this great contrast between chapters 17 and 18. A great and powerful temptress is being pictured in chapter 17, right? She looks undefeatable. She has the world at her fingertips. But in chapter 18, we see her sudden and complete downfall. There's this great contrast here. And this contrast is actually nothing new to the Bible. See, the history of God in this world has always been victory against all odds. You know, we see it in Abraham fathering a child against all odds. We see it in Moses, one man confronting the nation of Egypt. We see it throughout the book of Judges as God continues to deliver Israel again and again from her enemies. The list could totally go on. But we actually see this most supremely in Jesus Christ, in his resurrection. Against all odds, Jesus defeats death itself. We're talking about the God of galaxies here. He's in the business of, doing, of victory against all odds. And at the death and resurrection of Jesus, he lit a bomb. He lit the fuse of victory. And when this bomb goes off, the world is going to be tidied up in this great Power and justice of God. And all throughout chapter 18, we see the finality and totality of God's judgment on Babylon the Great. What takes years, decades, centuries to build up will, be, will come crashing down just like that. So have a look with me on the screen at these few verses. These, these are repeated phrases throughout the chapter. In verse 10, for in a single hour your judgment has come. Verse 17, for in a single hour. Such fabulous wealth was destroyed. In verse 19, for in a single hour she was destroyed. In other words, all the powers in the world, cities, ideologies, cultures, whatever it is, no matter what their claims are, thinking that they're going to last forever, in the end, they'll all just come crashing down in an, in an instant. And that's not all. Throughout verses 21 and 24, the repeated phrase, is never again. Babylon isn't just going to end. She'll never come back, never return. See, despite what our world tells us, despite what Babylon cries out to in our hearts, she will not bring you final happiness. She will not find final joy or fulfillment. The world, Babylon, is coming to an end, and she's never coming back. And so God is telling us, get out of her before it's too late. Have a look at Revelation chapter 18, verse 4. It's up on the screen. Then I heard another voice from heaven Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. Now, when it says come out of her, he doesn't mean, you know, come out of this world and, and join a monastery or a temple or something. He means come out of her ideology. Don't be mesmerized by her. But the reality is as we live in this world, as we wait for Jesus to return, that's gonna be really, really hard. In many ways, we live in a beautiful, attractive world, don't we? And so there'll be times where we will genuinely be tempted, we will stumble, we'll be distracted. But here's the secret to the Christian life. The secret to the Christian life is believing what Jesus has said and done and having his voice in your air at a louder volume than everything else in this world. This will protect us from wavering and it will keep our eyes fixed on God's certain future. So let me ask, where are you making the time to turn up the volume of God's word in your life? What do you do when you first wake up or go to sleep at night? What are you choosing to listen to on the way to work or on the way to uni, on the bus? Who are you seeking wisdom and counsel from? Is it God through his word, or is it something else? Or, maybe like me, the problem isn't necessarily who, when, or what you're consuming, but how much. A big problem for me is I listen to stuff all the time. You know, when I take my son for a walk, I'm listening to, I've got my headphones on. Uh, I'm consuming content on my breaks always. I even go to bed with my headphones on. We have so much stuff to consume, sometimes we don't even give ourselves space or um, space to think about the, um, the things of God. What voice is loudest in your life? Now, with any funeral, there's mourning and grieving, right? And we actually see mourning and grieving in chapter 18. But what's important to notice is just who is mourning for Babylon. So in chapter 18, verse 9 and 10, we actually see it's the kings who commit adultery with Babylon and cry out, woe, woe to the great city when they see her fall. And in verses 16 to 19, we see it's the merchants and sailors who mourn Babylon's destruction. Now, why do you think these parties are mourning? They're crying because they can't get rich or benefit from her anymore. They grieve because when you're on top in Babylon... When you're one of the winners in human culture, wholly invested in this world, then of course you're going to hate God's judgment. Of course you're going to say, whoa, because when when this world ends, because you're winning. And let's not be naive about this. We live in a prosperous, comfortable country, one with many benefits, right? We're all at risk of seeing God's judgment wrongly. We're in danger of being more concerned about this world than about the world to come. God is telling us, do you see what's underneath all that makeup? Come out of her. Come out of her, because Babylon is a sinking ship. This brings us to the second view of Babylon's judgment, and it's actually a picture of celebration. So have a look with me at Revelation chapter 19, verse 1 and 2. Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous, because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his slaves that, were on her, on her, that was on her hands. Mourning and grieving isn't the only response at Babylon's funeral, because the second view is we, get the, we get is the reaction of the victims of Babylon, and they rejoice in God's judgment, because if you're one of the abused or oppressed in this world, then you're going to say, at last. At last, God has put things right. They don't question whether God is, is harsh or unfair. They see that it's entirely fair because they know exactly what's underneath all the beauty and glory in this world. So what really is quite an ugly picture is actually meant to be one of great comfort and assurance. See, if we look back, if we think back to Jesus' life, as he walked towards that cross. He experienced ridicule, mocking, incredible suffering and shame, but through all that, Jesus never once wavered from his conviction that he would overcome his opposition and raise up his people. And here in Revelation 17 to 19, John is actually painting that vision that kept Jesus going. And just like an advanced screening of a movie, we get a picture of a massive victory where Jesus destroys Babylon and raises up his people. In this world, Jesus' people are the lowly and looked down upon. They're called crazy and foolish for following Jesus. But it's these people that Jesus will raise up. And on that day, Jesus is gonna separate believers from unbelievers, and when we read this, when we see that, we're meant to cheer. We're meant to celebrate when God does that. But here's the thing. If you're anything like me, and you read this part of the Bible, it leaves me conflicted. I mean, I get it. I understand it. It's not a very difficult passage. But honestly, I've always been really uncomfortable with Revelation 19, because these verses rejoice in judgment. Hallelujah! is the repeated phrase throughout chapter 19. True and just are God's judgments. I've always been uncomfortable with that, and I'm uncomfortable because I'm just slightly embarrassed by it. I don't want my non-Christian friends reading that. And yet at the same time, I do. Because what this part of Revelation does is, it teaches us that the world we live in is not a wonderful place. I mean, the bit we live in is is pretty spectacular, but underneath all of it, even in our own little paradise here in Auckland, the human heart and human culture is still just a prostitute. It's all tidied up to hide all the ugliness, but it's a wicked city. It's trading in death and trading in human evil, and God is right to judge. And as and as as uncomfortable as I feel about all that, I shouldn't feel uncomfortable Because Revelation keeps telling us again and again, true and just are God's judgments. And so as we read Revelation 19, verse 2 should be our prayer. We should say, God, judge. God, when are you going to put everything right again? God, do what you say you'll do in Revelation 17 to 19. Make Jesus come in glory. Judge the prostitute of human culture. End the evil. That ought to be our prayer because it's the prayer of the saints. And yet at the same time, we ought to say, but God, please not yet. Please not yet until, I've, until, until my friends hear about Jesus. Not until my family hear about Jesus. Not until I've had enough time to get them out of Babylon. See, we have this conflict. We're torn in our hearts because we long for justice. And yet at the same time, we want the mercy. And that torn heart is just about as Christian as you can possibly get. For God so loved the world, the sinful world, the world of Babylon, the prostitute. For God so loved that world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And so being a Christian in the world of Revelation 17 to 19, our world is means having two great passions side by side in our heart. Hating the world just as much as God hates it. Seeing the world exactly as God sees it, a prostitute. And yet loving mercy and loving the world just as much as God loves it. And it's only in Jesus, it's only at the cross, do those two things ever come together. See, in Jesus, we can, only in Jesus can we see how seriously God takes sin, seriously enough to kill his only son, to judge it. And it also shows us how seriously God takes mercy, seriously enough to sacrifice his only son in order to give it. And for us, that means for the rest of our our lives, we need to stay on that knife edge of both hating and loving the world, seeing Babylon and saying, yes, it's a beautiful city, but also saying it's an evil city. Saying to God, when will you judge it? But at the same time, crying out, please, not yet. This is the constant tension of living the Christian life in this world. Loving this world, but never being seduced by it either. Have a look with me again at verse chapter 18, verse 4. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins. This is as clear a call uh, as for any of us as Christians to be, uh, to be different to the world and, and the city that we live in. That we'll love the city, we'll love Auckland, but we won't love the lust, the sinful materialism, the pornography and the wealth and the luxury and all those things. That's what Auckland loves. And we love Auckland, but we don't love what they love. Christians are different. Our hearts are different. We hunger for righteousness, we groan for justice, and we long for God to be glorified. And it's not about commands, being told what to do by some tyrant God. So often I find that people are are concerned with Christianity just being about a bunch of rules that you follow in an ancient book. No, it's actually far more radical than that. This passage is asking us, do we see the world the way that God does? Do we see the evil in our world, how lost it is, and how desperate it needs mercy. Because if we do, then coming out of her isn't a command, it's our appetite. The great challenge for Christians in this passage is to love Babylon, to love Auckland, and to utterly reject everything that they stand for. To love your friends passionately, to be committed to them, and yet saying, I would not want your life in a million years. I love you, but I hate everything that you stand for. And That's an incredibly hard balance to live with, isn't it? But that's what this passage is saying. We love the city. We know she's a prostitute. Now, throughout our lives, there are going to be so many times where we're going to feel unsure who's going to win out, whether we'll think, is the Christian life really worth it? We'll think that this world is too great, too wonderful, too powerful. We'll even question whether Jesus is really coming back. But these chapters, they show us the end score. And while it's a a bit of a spoiler, it's the ending we want, and it's the ending that we need. If you're here and, and not yet a Christian, you might still be wondering, what does this mean for me? God is saying to all of us, come out of her. And have a look at these words in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, up on the screen. Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. If you're here today, whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, you're invited. Invited to this incredible feast that, unlike Babylon, will finally and fully satisfy We'll look more into that in the coming weeks. But today, the question for us is, have you accepted that invitation? Will you trust in God's words? Will you trust in Jesus? And so as we close, I want to ask, will you join me? Will you join me in accepting that invitation? Will you join me in prayer as we thank God for the incredible future he's secured in Jesus? Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this, these honest and hard words, uh, that this world is very beautiful and is the glory of the, of the world, uh, but we also thank you that you've shown us what's underneath, what's underneath all that makeup. Uh, and so we pray that as we see that, help us to live on that knife edge, help us to see this world as you see it. Help us to love this world, love our friends so much that we'll continue to urge them and call them to return to your son, Jesus. Uh, help us to never be seduced by this and help us to help one another to not fall trapped to the calls of Babylon. And uh, we pray that you might help us through your word, by your spirit, uh, through one an- and through one another. And uh, we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.